Welcome to episode 16 of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast. On the show, I talk to athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. Thanks for listening, and I'm your host, Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. This episode, we're talking to elite road and trail runner, Tim Tollefson. He's also a physical therapist in Mammoth Lakes, California, where he's a certified strength and conditioning specialist who's worked with athletes from basically all the major leagues in the U.S., his running highlights include competing at the Olympic Marathon Trials twice, podiuming twice at the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, as well as USATF Trail National Championships, which he's won, uh, and also ultra wins outside the US in Australia and Europe. So this show is about contrasting road and trail running and how people can prepare for those. So we discussed Tim's start in the sport of running, then how he transitioned from track at Chico State to marathoning and onto major 100-mile trail races. In particular, we talk about the changes in his training and what he's learned along the way, uh, both for peaking for different types of event and also for executing better. Uh, Tim's got some really wise philosophies uh, and some very useful things for people to listen to, which he's honed over the years to allow him to keep improving as well as to keep enjoying his racing. So let's get into it. And now a word from this month's sponsor, Inside Tracker. Do you want to run further and faster and recover quicker and easier? Do you want to feel healthier than you've ever felt before? You need to make a change, and that's what Inside Tracker is all about. Founded by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometric data from MIT, Tufts, and Harvard, Inside Tracker is a personalized health and wellness platform like no other. What's their secret? First, Inside Tracker uses its painted algorithm to analyze your body's data and offer you a clearer picture than you've ever had before of what's going on inside you. Then Inside Tracker provides you with concrete, science-backed, trackable action plan information for reaching your performance goals and being your healthy best. For a limited time, Inside Tracker is offering a 25% off in its entire store. Just visit insidetracker.com/endurancehour. Start using Inside Tracker today because change is an inside job. So, Tim, you're currently recovering from your first Western States 100 miler, and it was a race with a lot of drama and carnage. Uh, so how are you feeling a month later? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, I, I'm feeling fine. I, I enjoyed myself out there. You know, it didn't, didn't pan out the way I had envisioned, um, but often that's how these ultra marathons do go. Um, and uh, I, I, I think something that excites me is I walked away um, pretty disappointed, but also just grateful for the opportunity to one, be there and two, finish Western States, which I think anytime someone's able to say that, that's a huge accomplishment. And so I was, I was thankful for that and, and just excited for the next attempt at it. I, I'm, I am now appreciating how much of a learning curve an, an event like that it has. And, and I walk away humbled and with a lot to hopefully learn from and, and kind of move forward and, and try to implement kind of an, the next go around. Well, that's exactly the kind of thing we want to talk about on the podcast. So I'm going to come back to Western States, but at the moment, the Olympics are on. So I'm going to start a little bit more in your past, and then we'll we'll come back to Western States and, and how that went. And just for people listening who didn't know, Tim was fifth place. So uh, although it wasn't what he wanted, uh, it's not exactly a bad result there. So just to put it in the context of people, it's not like he finished 100th or something like that. But we will talk about that more in a minute. So if we start off um, talking about where you got into running, so... Um, 
at the collegiate level and, and when you first started? What was that like and, and what got you, you first interested in running? Oh, yeah, that goes a ways back. I, I guess uh, really my, my true introduction to, to running was probably in the fifth or sixth grade. Uh, we had these presidential fitness awards that you could earn, and uh, there was a one-mile timed run. And I think that got me a, a signed letter, you know, even though it was stamped from George W. Bush. And uh, so at the time, it was uh, kind of a cool thing. But uh, Or no, that would have been Clinton. Sorry. I, but um, yeah, that was kind of my first introduction. And then I, I realized that it was sort of a way for me to, to find my, my place in, in my world at that, at that time, you know, through middle school, kind of had a hard time fitting in and but through athletics, I uh, was able to kind of carve out a niche or a niche in, in the space and, and kind of connect with people and that budded into more opportunities in, in high school. Um, I was never fantastic. You know, I, I had big dreams, but my results didn't follow up necessarily. Like I never made the state meet in high school. Um, I was never, you know, a school record holder, all these things that I dreamt of. Um, but based or thankfully, I had a, a, a high school teammate that uh, had gone on to run at Chico State University here in California, and he convinced the college coach at there, Gary Town, to take a chance on me. He just thought there was something in me that, given time to develop, could kind of uh, come around, even though I didn't have any real... I guess, performances to back it up. And, uh, and so I'd had the opportunity to, to run in college and it was pretty tough. It was, you know, coming from a low mileage kid in high school to running in college. It was a very tough, tough transition um, where most collegiate programs are running high mileage. And so it took me multiple years to adjust to that training and stay healthy. And then my college career, I guess, was kind of like my high school career where I had some, you know, some nice performances, but never made All-American, never was the school record holder, all these things that kids dream about. And so I graduated feeling like I had a kind of still had things to prove to myself and others and, and that drive to, to see what was next. Um, you know, and I think it, it, at the time it felt like a disappointment, but really in hindsight, almost a blessing that, hey, I was never fulfilled, so I kept chasing things. Um, and um, so then my college coach said, hey, go after the marathon. He had actually told my wife, Lindsay, to do that. And and uh, so we started chasing the marathon standard. So that was kind of the next goal that we had. And by ma marathon standard, you mean for the Olympic trials? Yeah, for the Olympic trials. So, yeah. And so how old were you at that point? That's what, early 20s? I must have graduated um, when I was 23 two or 23 from college, from undergraduate. Yep. So uh, then spent the next five years, almost six years specifically training for the roads, primarily with a marathon focus, trying to hit that Olympic trials marathon standard for the US. Um, but doing a lot of 5k, 10k half marathon stuff in the process. And then every once in a while hopping into a track race. But as anyone listening that has run maybe collegiately, once you've graduated, the barrier to entry for most track races is pretty high. There just aren't opportunities for post-collegians. So that world's, it, it makes sense why most athletes just transition to the roads because there's opportunity there. So I have to admit that whenever I talk to elite runners, everyone is always putting themselves in the context of what the best people they know can do and, and therefore whatever they personally can do feels like very little. So what kind of, of PRs are you talking about at college level where you're saying you were good, but not like all American standard? What, what, what were your best kind of times there? 
So uh, let's see, I guess just running through them. Um, I never did the 10 K on the track cause I refused to, I, I said that that's ridiculous and too far. Um, and my, my 5k PR was a modest 1507. So I never broke the 15 minute barrier, um, which it, for most college athletes, for men, you know, a 15 minute barrier is, is, is kind of like the minimum standard you want to hit. And then the sub 14 is the next big one. Um, I, I kind of found my, my place in the steeplechase world. So I ended up running, um, nine Oh five, I think in college, um, with mono. So I was pretty proud of that. Um, it was a, a, a decent performance. That was my best, but then in college or in cross country, I think I notched maybe a 30, 30, 40 or 34, somewhere right around 30, 40 for the 10 K, uh, in cross country. Yeah. So I can see where the uh, the more rugged terrain and things like steeplechase <laughs> seem to translate well then to, to going into ultras. Mm-hmm. But going into to the marathon, did you have a few attempts at that before you hit the the standard? And what was the standard at that time? Was it two nineteen, two eighteen? Yeah. When I when I really started chasing it, the standard was two nineteen. Um, and so I guess my marathon career started actually more just supporting my wife, Lindsay. She had um, achieved her first Olympic trials marathon standard. Um, and she was actually our first alumni from Chico State to make the Olympic trials, which was pretty cool um, in the marathon and kind of opened the doors for multiple other athletes to do the same kind of, you know, it's that you see someone close to you do it and then you, you think it's possible. But I, I actually paced her through my very first ma- one of her marathons was my first marathon pacing. Um, and I think I ran 245.08 with her on that day. And then I took my first attempt, maybe it was uh, about a year later. And um, my first attempt was 229. And it took me a couple more before I, I got down into the low 220s and then under two, 219 eventually. So yeah, it took me a couple years really. I think that's something that probably should resonate with a lot of people that you never know quite where you can get to. And even just seeing progress in it is a major part of the enjoyment there. But I have to admit, I, I assumed that your times at a college level had been um, you know, more like sub 14s and things like that, because we're hearing some more and more people, particularly in the, the trail world now, who have a little bit more of that background where they were very good collegiate athletes, but they were never going to go to the Olympics. So, you know, like a, mm-hmm. a 13, 50, 5K runner is, is never going to the Olympics if that's where they max out. But they're really fast. And, yeah. and then more people like that seem to be transitioning. So mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like you still got a lot faster after leaving college. Um, and part of that, I suppose, just getting used to the marathon. Um, and then which, uh, how many Olympic trials did you end up doing? Was it one or two? Uh, two. Two, okay. Yep. No, so, yeah, I think you're right where um, the nowadays we, I mean, there are a lot of men in the um, ultra trail world that are sub 14 minute 5k runners at some point, um, or they've run really fast in the 10k um, or sub four minute milers even, you know, we have a few of those out there. Um, but uh, I, I guess, yeah, I, I never, I never really kind of. I guess you could look at it two ways. One, I either never ran to my potential in college, which I think is true, um, but also I was—I've just been a slow developer, and that's kind of been true for my entire career of, of running, but also just um, you know physically as a as a person. Um, you know, I was a late bloomer in high school, um, and and I think for endurance sports, it benefits those that are willing to stick around long term. Um, if, uh, because you just are going to compound year after year, season after season, 
And, um, you know, there are no shortcuts with the exception of PEDs. And, you know, so if you're in it long enough, you're going to start to see some improvement, which I think is really neat. That's kind of like you get out what you put into it, um, but you just have to have that slow burn and slow game. Um, and I, I actually had some teammates in high school and college that were exceptionally uh, talented and successful. And I almost, I've, I've talked to them about it. It's almost like they got tired of winning. You know, it's kind of like you achieve things, not easy because everyone works hard, but if it does come to you when you set a goal, it's almost easier to move on to the next thing in life where I feel like for me throughout every stage, high school, college, post-collegiate, and even in the trail world, it's kind of like I have so much unfinished business that I'm not ready to hang it up. You know, I, I just feel like I want to keep going. And that's why, like yourself, I'll probably be doing this for a long time. I, I agree. And, and the fact that it didn't come immediately, that it was a, a gradual process of work um, does get a lot more value because if you've worked five years to get somewhere, you're going to value it more than if you worked six months to get there. So um, what, what did your training look like then? And how did it vary between what you're doing in college and then when you were building up to the marathon, the kind of mileage? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of standard things, I'm sure, that would be very universal there, the types of speed session. But what kind of mileage uh, and how much recovery did you have days off each week or, or how did that work for you? So in college, as I mentioned, coming from a high school program, I was only running maybe 30 to 35 miles a week in high school. And I was a bit injury prone. So my college coach slowly built me up where by my senior year, I was handling 90 mile weeks. Um, but that took five years to develop. Um, and then post collegiately, I, I kind of bounced around for a few years, actually, because I got into grad school. And anyone that's been through kind of a grad program knows that it's pretty intense. And so I was not running as much mileage at that point, And kind of I was more Lindsay's training partner. Uh, but then when I poured myself really into my own development as a marathoner, I got back up into the 90s, eventually just over 100 miles or so. I may have gotten into the one teens um, for some weekly mileage and marathon training. But I because I was either in school or actually working full time after I graduated, I never got into the the mileage you might hear some people put in, you know, the 120s, 30s, 40s, or 50s. I just didn't have the energy or the time to, to put into that. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I'd say I kind of hovered in that 100 to maybe 115 max for marathon training um, and a lot of just tempo-based work at marathon pace. Um, I learned from one of the, I think, one of the best uh, marathon coaches in the country and maybe the world, uh, Terrence Mahone, he was the old uh, uh, Mammoth Track Club coach here in Mammoth Lakes, um, who coached Dina and Ryan Hall and a bunch of others. Um, he, he was all about, you know, long tempos, and we had done that stuff in, in college as well. Um, but then uh, he instilled in pretty much every athlete the importance of emotional control, and, you know, something that I think for marathoning is really important, whether it's in training or racing, that emotional control and kind of confidence to check your ego and let things come to you and not, you know, get in too over your head and eager and blow up. So it was neat that in my budding career, I was able to learn from a great like that, even though I was not one of the greats. <laughs> I was far from it. But even still going to the Olympic trials would be a, an absolute dream for the vast majority of runners. And I'm sure most people listening to this, there'll be a, a mix of marathoners and trail runners. Uh, the idea of running that fast is mind blowing. And, and even though, as you say, 110, 120 miles a week is not as high as, as some of the top level ones, that's still a very significant amount, especially when done consistently. So you, you kind of preempted my next question, which is what did you learn from, from doing that training? Like, did you learn to 
listen to your body better to adjust that mileage around how busy you were um, and, and also that that mental side of it just to talk a little bit more about that that mental control um, and, and is a lot of that to do with not just reacting to other people definitely uh, I'd say and and thankfully I that's something I learned early in my college career from my my college coach um, the importance of just checking in internally on what's going on um, I guess we predated the GPS watches, so we didn't have all of that, all of those metrics and data to, to get hooked on. Um, but uh, we never did any heart rate, heart rate based training. It was all just effort and learning to listen to your breathing, your your own you know, feeling, your heartbeat, and your effort. And and I think learning that early was helpful. And then transitioning into the marathon with people in Mammoth Lakes, it was similar. You know, no one got caught up in heart rate data. Um, and so it was more of that just kind of listening to the body. Um, so I think that was an important lesson, just kind of really tuning into what I felt like I needed either in workouts, tr- training runs, or in races. Um, and uh, and then definitely, I, I think marathon, and I've said this before, you really learn to suffer in the marathon. Anyone that's run a marathon, they, I mean, it's exceptionally hard. You know, it's even if it's only two hours or three hours or four hours, it's a intense two, three or four hour period um, where a lot of our ultra marathons are that really slow burn. Like you, you may never actually be at threshold or above that. Um, but in the marathon, you learn to basically teeter on the edge of the cliff and not fall off, hopefully. But you are really just pushing yourself to what feels like in the absolute max and you can't let off the throttle. And something I got kind of addicted to is that like, hey, I can't waste a second anywhere. I can't stop at an aid station. If I drop a bottle, it's gone. If I don't react to a move that someone made, I'm gone. You know, so every second really matters. And and it's something that I think, you know, you just learn to not take, you know, any time for granted. And um, And I think mentally, it's a good mindset to end up in where you can just work through things and you have to troubleshoot and problem solve and and make adjustments on the fly. And knowing that, Every every action you make has like direct consequences to the outcome, um, and so when you come from that to something more like the trail world, and this a little more forgiving, I think it's a neat place to kind of like, I guess, implement some of those techniques that you, you've hopefully refined over the years. Uh, you're using all the words, the key words I would use when describing the the skills you need to be able to run both, well, any endurance race, which is, yeah, being able to judge how your body's signals are changing, being able to adjust things. Maybe you're going into the wind now and a minute ago you weren't. Maybe it's got hotter. Uh, maybe you uh, need to take on some food. All these things that it, you, you dial in so precisely with the marathon. And I think the key thing there that I'm sure you found helpful as well is just the idea of having fewer variables. So the marathon, like you say, you're right on that edge and you just stay there for two hours, 19 minutes or whatever in your case. And then in an ultra, you throw in a whole load of variables. So the altitude changes, the gradient changes, the technicality changes, the number of hours you've been out there and therefore the muscle fatigue changes. But if you can just get your pacing right and that judgment of effort and that subtle adjustments of five seconds a mile here and there on the marathon, that's incredibly transferable to trails. And equally, I think the all the things you just described that you then need to be able to do in a longer trail race helps make you a better marathoner as well. So do you still do any, any road marathons or have you moved completely over to the trail side of things now? It's been a number of years since I've done a, a road marathon. Uh, may have actually been back in like 2015 or 16. Um, I had the intention of going back, but I sort of just fell headfirst into the trail world and uh, it uh, it's 
I, so I found it hard for me personally to go back and, and run the type of times I would want. Um, and that's, I guess you could get into the, like the comparison game where I think I could mm-hmm. go back and run very good marathons, but I would have to detach myself from maybe previous versions of myself and, and be okay with what may come. Um, but um, just because through ultra running, I've, I felt my, my overall physiology and kind of body change a bit with it. Um, and, but I, I, what you were just saying about the, um, you know, so many variables, I, I think that is a reason why maybe I have found success in 100 mile racing is because I've spent basically a lifetime honing in those skills of effort based um, racing on in the marathon. And, and for me, maybe I was fortunate that because yeah, I made the trials and I ran some fast times, but I was never looking to win races. So I didn't get into that mindset of like going out and competing against others. I was more competing against the clock and myself um, where, you know, we have other ultra marathoners that, you know, they're competing against everybody or, you know, like, I guess the, the historical grace and their crushing course records. And, and I almost come in more with that appreciate or the different mindset of, Hey, I'm trying to get the best out of myself. And when you go in with that mindset, it's easier, I think, to have a more consistent race or a, you know, consistently put up solid results versus maybe crushing it and knocking it out of the park because I haven't necessarily aimed for that. Um, and that comes from my marathon kind of preparation, I guess. Um, but, uh, which, you know, sometimes I'm like, man, I have a hard time then taking the other mindset of like, Hey, let's, let's go race people versus racing myself or the clock. Um, but then I guess it's, it's to each their own on what, what fulfills you. And, and for me, typically, like you said, at the very beginning that, you know, seeing success come to you over time is addictive. And then, you know, knowing that I can always do something better the next outing and knowing that I'm going to do it again it drives me more than just, I guess, trying to nail one and, you know, crush something. And it, and for me, that's just kind of suits my personality. I, I've, for people listening, I've just been nodding nonstop the whole time there. I couldn't agree with any of that more. And I agree there's that fine line between maybe if you're going to go for that marathon time that is a little bit quicker, but that's more of a time trial, which is, again, against you versus racing the people in an actual event. But also, if you're a 216 marathoner you're not racing the 202 marathoner so it doesn't really matter (laughs) mentally whether you try and race them you're not going to race them there's too much of a gap there Um, but that's one of the nice things i actually find for the majority of people maybe you're uh, someone who's very competitive in one discipline but uh in other ones they're not going to be at the front of the field or because it's a an elite olympic level thing you won't be and i think it can be very helpful to get that humbling effect even for people who are used to winning a lot to go and do the Boston Marathon, the New York Marathon, and know they're not going to win because they're not going to run those times, even if you're an Olympic trials guy. But instead, just to be in the race and not have to worry about, okay, well, I've got to worry about someone else's move and just instead see how well you can execute. And a lot of what you're saying there was being able to dial in the process rather than being 100% focused on the outcome, either the time or the position, and then you don't listen to those signals your body's giving you. So I think uh, that's some really good uh, information and advice. And just the way you're describing things there is... um, is perfect, I think, for people to learn from. Um, I am going to just ask a little bit more about the road, and then we'll go on to the trail. And that is, you've done fast marathons, you've done fast ultras. Have you considered combining those, like the World 100K or something like um, Two Oceans or Comrades, the big road ultras in South Africa? Definitely. You know, and I think... It- 
I, I've made a name for myself in the mountain ultras, I guess, but my heart still lies with the, uh, the pavement. I mean, you can see over my shoulder, I have this beautiful yeah. photo of a road that we run on green church. Um, I, I just love the pavement. Um, however, I guess I, I'm someone that gets fixated on a goal and obsessive and anyone that has followed kind of my career over the last five years, it's no surprise that my fixation has been UTMB. And, you know, so I, I dedicate my time and my energy into that sometimes at you know, my own expense where I think I probably could have had some great success at other events, but I got so singularly focused on one thing that uh, maybe I, I starved myself of those opportunities. So it's been hard to transition back into that, but I do, I'd, I'd love to get over and, and do comrades one year um, because I, there's something I think beautiful about that suffering on pavement where you're just pounding and you almost can turn your brain off. Well, you can in the sense of you're not worried about, you know, the footing, you know, it, it could be a, a pretty crappy road and you have to avoid some potholes, but it's not like a trail. You know, you can, you can really just grind your way into, you can grind yourself into the pavement. And there's something I think beautiful about that. Um, and, and I'll never, I'll never not enjoy that, that uh, process. And even in my, like training for UTMB, I run on the pavement often. Um, and it's something that I still enjoy. Um, so at some point in my career, hopefully I, I can shift away from this, uh, these other goals and, and enjoy some of those uh, events because as I've followed others participating, they look incredible. And uh, I'd, I'd love to actually give it a go. Well, that seems like a perfect segue to UTMB since you've just <laughs> mentioned how you're obsessed with it. Um, I personally have been obsessed with comrades as well, and and I think you would love it. And and with that road speed, you would have the perfect combination of being able to judge things well, and the hills, and the heat, and all these other things. But yeah, that is a fantastic race. One of my dogs is called Comrades. That's how much I like it. Um, so talking about UTMB, you've raced, I think, the last four times. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I did CCC and then four UTMBs. And so the first two, you got on the podium, you got third place each time. So huge success there in what is the biggest uh, trail ultra in the world. Um, you know, I think anyone would, would agree that's the case. So how did you um, transition to, to that and, and kind of, I suppose, why as well? You're having success with the road. Did you just decide you wanted something new and you started doing some trail races? I know you did Trans Gran Canaria to, to be able to qualify for just the points to be in UTMB, um, but you had huge success pretty quickly. So how did you do that? What did you change to your training uh, and what changed in your mindset to switch over to that? So the, the switch initially happened, um, it was kind of a buildup, but in 2013, 2014, I ran a number of marathons and, and I actually started kind of taking inspiration from one of the marathon greats, uh, Yuki Kawauchi, uh, the Japanese runner who won Boston in 2018. And I started recognizing like how frequently he was running marathons. And, and so I kind of took that approach. I ran a couple marathons quicker than the average person recommends. Um, and I ran a personal best while doing that. Um, but then I just basically ran the same time in almost every subsequent marathon, despite feeling like I went in with better preparation. And, and I guess I just got burnt out on the marathon. I felt like I needed to change. You know, I, I got tired of putting in, you know, effort and getting the same result back. Um, and then, and I had a number of friends um, that were doing trail ultras at the time. And I kind of, I guess was envious of the opportunities that they were getting. And it seemed like they were going to cool places to, to race. And, and so I just, and I figured, hey, maybe it's the time to sample something new. And, and I actually always had planned on going to Ironman after uh, my marathon career, just because I, 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 
I knew that the longer things got, the better I would become. Um, and being, you know, kind of like you said, the cross country and the steeplechase I gravitated towards. So I viewed Ironman or triathlon as sort of uh, the next logical thing um, where it's problem solving even to a greater extent and there's multidiscipline and I'm a pretty athletic person. Um, but I, I joke, I kind of, I stumbled into the trail world and then just never had an opportunity to, to chase the Ironman distance um, because I did find some success in the trail world. Um, but I, I do think trail running is a bit almost like a, you know, a never ending steeplechase race. <laughs> and, um, um, but for, for UTMB, I, I guess I just really broke down the components of what I thought would, you know, the race, um, would, I broke down the actual race itself and, and tried to train for those individual components. Um, you know, I knew that you needed to be a, you know, basically handle three massive big climbs and descents at the end in the final 50 K. Um, and so I would mimic my training to do that. Um, much like I would mimic my marathon training for whatever course I was going to be training for or racing on. Um, and then, what we had talked about earlier, the emotional control and racing myself and the clock versus people um, that gave really gave me the success the first year where I went in really with a healthy respect for a hundred mile distance had never done it, but I've, I, I did the same thing with the steeplechase and the marathon. I, I went in humbly wanting a good experience and not dreaming about winning races. And so my first UTMB in 2016, I went in just with the intention, intention of, hey, I want to finish this first and foremost. Like, and that was an honest goal. Second, I wanted to you know, be competitive with myself and see what I could do. And I thought maybe that would be a top 10 performance. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I ended up third place in that first time. And really, that was probably a testament to my naivety and not getting caught up in racing. You know, I, I ran much more even split than anyone else in the field. I think you may have even pointed out, like I slowed down less than 5%, I think, first half to second half or something close to that, which for a minute, Did you not pass a whole load of people in the last couple of hours yeah. as well? Like you were nowhere near third position. No, I wasn't. And then suddenly like outside the top 10 maybe even until very close to the end. Yeah, and so it was one of those... It just kind of built on itself, but it was because I had no intention of nailing my first hundred. It just came to me. And I think actually we'll talk about it maybe, but we saw that at States also, like, you know, a friend drew, like I had talked to him beforehand. It's like, Hey, and I had given him the same advice. I wish I'd given myself for my first Western States experience. Um, but, uh, you know, I think when you go in with kind of that, like, you know, healthy respect for the distance and take care of the variables you can control. Um, and know that you, ideally you can build upon um, your first half and, and not necessarily run faster the second half, but you can be in control the second half. That's where you're going to finish strong or stronger than if you are grasping for straws and everything's unraveling because that's a really crappy place to be. Um, so I guess, you know, UTMB, it, um, it just, it did, it suited me well. And I mean, also I live in Mammoth Lakes, which is high in the, the, the Sierra Ma Nevada mountains. And so I can train for the demands of a course like UTMB. Um, but I think UTMB gets a bit of a misnomer. You know, it is the biggest trail ultra in the world, but it is, most people would say it's not a very technical race. It's almost like a blend of some road running, some buffed out, like really nice, uh, gravel roads you do have some technical sections and some like steep climbs and descents but nothing like a lot of the european truly technical races so it's it's a very runnable hundred even though it has thirty thousand feet of gain um it's it is very runnable 
I, I know what you mean, but I also know how weird that'll sound to some people listening. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think what you're describing there, just that humility going into the first time, whether it's the first time you do the marathon, the first time you do uh, a new ultra distance or a new type of race, that's so important because there's going to be stuff you go through that's new. And so just saying, okay, well, I don't know everything about this. So I'm going to be a little bit cautious, give some respect to the course, give some respect to the competitors who've done it multiple times and done it well. And, you know, that paid off massively combined with obviously a very good level of fitness going into it. So um, just to put some some rough numbers on, if you can remember, and, and you can maybe even just think about your more recent ones, but kind of how many um, miles per week, how much vert per week would you typically do in the buildup to something like UTMB? Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, for me, I it's taken me a long time to handle more vert. Um, and that probably is a testament to so many years of just road running. Um, where my first time over there in 2015, I ran CCC, the 100K race. And I think in training, I may have gotten up to like 10 or 11,000 feet of gain per week. Um, and then in my first UTMB, I probably got up to maybe 14 or 15,000 feet of gain per week um, leading in. And that was over, I was still putting in more mileage than I probably should have. <clears throat> I think I was doing maybe 110 or 115 mile weeks good enough up for UTMB. So when you break that down, it's not very much climbing per mile. Um, and and so it's taken me basically until now, I think last week was my biggest week of vert ever. And it was 26,000 feet of vert in a single week. Like, which, I mean... I think it's a lot and a lot of people will think it's a lot, but when you compare it to maybe some of what other people do, it's not necessarily outrageous. Um, but it took me kind of just like in my five years of collegiate running to get up to 90 miles a week per or 90 miles per week of running my senior year in college. It took me five years to handle 18 to 20,000 feet of vert per week running or training for UTMB. Um, and I think that was a testament also to the like slow burn. You just have to, you know, put in the work and build season after season, year after year. And for me, that was to avoid injury um, and not burn out because I do want to be doing this for a long time. I, I'd like to do some competitive trail ultra running for another 10 years. And I think that sets me up for that possibility versus diving in, having an incredible year or two and then burning out. And, and I learned that through speaking to others in the sport and researching and reading as much as I could and realizing how many people before me have experimented and maybe come up on the, the wrong side of the equation. And, and it scared me a bit. You know, I, I love running too much to want to compromise my health to just have a couple of good seasons and then not be able to do it. No, again, I, I'm completely agreeing with everything you're saying there. I have to say, I think a 26,000 feet of, of vert in a week is a lot, 8,000 meters in a week. Um, but as you say, there are definitely people who do a little bit more than that. And that can also be the danger these days. You know, a totally separate topic, just seeing Strava and seeing how some people might be doing double what, you know, one elite could be doing double what another elite is doing, and yet they'll finish in the same time. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's actually a good way of reminding people that it's not just about do as much as you can, it's do as much as your body can sustain and benefit from. And those are two different things, of course, and, and you allowed a, a longer amount of time to build that up. So that you can then really take on a lot of training and benefit from it. So then you'll, you'll go into the next race, uh, even fitter. So um, the first couple of, of UTMBs went very well, third place and third place. The next couple didn't go as well. So what do you think changed there? Did you do even more training? Did you do too much uh, execution issues? What, what was the difference really? And, and I'm sure part of it's just luck. I mean, these races are so hard to get perfect that you could do everything right and still have something go wrong. 
Totally. Yeah. Um, 2018. So yeah, 2016 and 2017, I got third at both UTMBs. 2018, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, I pulled the, 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 short straw and had bad luck. Basically. Um, I, I went in there and I guess I could step backwards. My coach, Mario Fraioli and I had talked about not reinventing too much in training year after year. We, we basically wanted to replicate and maybe tweak little things, you know, cause there mm-hmm. is that danger, like you said, of getting, uh, um, comparative on Strava or other platforms where it's like, Hey, I only did 18,000 feet of vert per week. And so-and-so is doing nine, like 29 or 35,000 feet per week. But then I'd have to remind myself, well, what place did I get? Okay. It worked out for me. So let's like do that. And maybe let's inch it up a little bit, you know, a couple percent. Um, and so that's what I've always tried to do and not get carried away. Cause it's definitely better to be on the start line healthy and, you know, 10% undertrained than 1% overtrained. Um, and in 2018, I felt like I went in prepared. I was climbing better than ever, had increased my climbing just a smidge. But just before 50K, it was a rainy year. I slipped and sliced my leg open and um, basically filleted my quad. And it, uh, it derailed my race. Um, I, I ended up like sticking in for almost another 100K. Um, they patched it up, but ultimately I dropped out, I think at 86 or 87 miles and got a helicopter ride to the hospital to go get, uh, treated. But, you know, so it was a case of bad luck basically, um, which, you know, it was disappointing, heartbreaking after two successful years. <clears throat> but then I think what, uh, I didn't handle well was the next year I felt like I needed to avenge myself and maybe do too much. So I did get into that, um, I, you know, even though maybe I had that wisdom going into the, the previous version, I had lost it. Um, you know, I'm human and, and I did too much. I started having some health complications, um, just wasn't responding to training well, was run down, fatigued in a really bad mental headspace. And it basically showed up to the 2019 version thrive mentally and physically. I didn't want to be there, but I felt like, you know, I had to for sponsors and, you know, to save face. And, but I, I ended up DNFing. I don't, it was before Cormier, before halfway. And I was just exhausted. And, and in hindsight, it's like, I shouldn't have even been there, but I, I wasn't, I guess, um, I was not, um, you know, confident in myself enough, or I didn't have sort of the, the, the ability to step back and realize, Hey, I need to put my health first. And so I tried to force it and it didn't pan out. So, you know, that's where I, I was actually kind of somewhat thankful that we had the pandemic year. So I didn't have to go back to UTMB for a year and step away. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of what happened to me, but it was, it was also a reminder that, Hey, you can have the utmost like success as an event, but it's not guaranteed. And you got to continue doing the things that got you there in the first place and don't get carried away, you know, like replicate, but don't reinvent too many things. Again, excellent advice there. And, and I think what happened there, it's so easy in hindsight to, to work it out. But in the moment, it, you can be thinking, well, last year didn't go well now, so I've got to make sure I do 10% more this year, or I, I got a marathon PR last time. So if I just do this the same as my friend did when he did his even faster time, that's what will get me to the next level. But um, yeah, that, I, I kind of guess it was maybe something along those lines that it was maybe just uh, trying to make up for having a bad year. And now a word from this month's sponsor, Inside Tracker. Do you want to run better than you've ever run before? You need to make a change, and that's what Inside Tracker is all about. 
Inside Tracker is an ultra-personalized wellness platform that analyzes your body data and creates science-backed action plans to help you reach your potential for better-than-ever endurance and performance. For a limited time, Inside Tracker is offering 25% off its entire store. Just visit insidetracker.com/endurancehour. Get Inside Tracker today because change is an inside job. What do you think you've learned from the four years of that now that are going to pay off for this year's UTMB? <laughs> well, to, to not do what you did last time, but do yeah. the other things you did before that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think this year actually is, is going to be kind of nice because I'm going in with what I would call a blank slate because I intentionally, well, I wanted to do Western states and I finally did it. Um, but my goal this year was states and states alone and anything after was just going to come as it did. So I was committed to if my body didn't respond to training or recovery after states, I would not do UTMB. And I'm kind of still in that place where like I'm signed up for UTMB, but we're still a month away and I've responded well. But, you know, if, if I just decide that, hey, it's it's not happening, I'm going to try and think of my long-term health first and, and not compromise that. Because, um, you know, for me, I have intentionally only done 100 per year for the last several years. Well, I thought that was good for like the best, I guess, for my career. Um, I, I know I can handle more, um, but I just chose not to. And so doing 200s in nine weeks is is definitely closer than I've ever done. Um, but I again, I think I can handle it, but I, I don't want to get carried away with um, setting too many expectations. So I'm going into UTMB this year with basically you know, a fresh set of eyes and not expectations of winning the race where, you know, after my success in 2016, 17, I knew I could win the race, but I think that maybe that started to erode me internally because I was too fixated on all or nothing. You know, I catastrophize a lot of things. So if, if I'm starting to kind of lose my position, then maybe it feels like everything is unraveling where this year I'm going to go in definitely more with that kind of beginner's mindset of, Hey, I want to close the loop. It's been four years since I've closed the loop around Mont Blanc. And I think just doing that is going to be a step back towards building the confidence in myself that, Hey, I'm going to win that race someday. But it, knowing that, Hey, it may not be this year and it probably won't be this year. And I'm okay with that. That sounds like a very healthy way to look at it. And I think just the way you're talking about it there, I would be surprised if you don't have a very successful year like you did the first couple of times. Uh, that does sound like exactly the right kind of mentality. And one thing you said there that you're not trying to win, like with that being the one and only goal, but that may be a, an outcome from doing everything right. And I think this, that's something people may not quite get especially about distance running if you're doing the 100 meters yeah you kind of got to try to win because you got a few seconds it's over you're just doing it as hard as you can but if you're doing this type of race that mentality could lead to going too hard or having to be in the lead pack at 10k into the whole thing versus going it doesn't matter where i am at 10k and that kind of, of, of just confidence and discipline that is very difficult to do but when you have the success you've had uh it should be easier to do so yeah i, I think you're that sounds like you're in a, a really good spot for this year so um have you kind of worked out now what types of race suit you the most because you, you like the mountain stuff but you've also like the dead flat road stuff um do you think that that just means that you can do all types of race uh, extremely well? Or do you think that maybe you're better suited to, to one thing with these years of experience now? Oh, yeah. You know, 
I think I've always enjoyed variety in all aspects of life. You know, I, I can get bored easily. <clears throat> and so spicing things up works well for me. Um, and I mean, I, I've, I've, I have fallen victim of telling myself almost like this, like I, I remind myself that I'm not the best climber because in mountain races, I've been dropped on climbs by a lot of people, but I've tried to change that mindset of re re kind of focusing that, Hey, I'm, I'm a good climber and I'm, you know, good enough to stay with people. Um, so kind of changing that, I guess that, uh, that focus or, you know, kind of my, my headspace is, has been important, but I I'm drawn to the mountain stuff just because it feels like a big adventure, but, and, and I think honestly, the longer the race gets, like I said about, you know, thinking about Ironman someday, the longer it gets, the more likely people are going to give up. And early in my career, this dates back to even high school days, realizing I wasn't the most talented, I thought, well, how can I game something to my advantage? I'll go longer, you know, because not everyone wants to do that. And I think the longer it does get, the more likely we level the playing field amongst people's athletic ability and it comes down to other variables. And that to me feels like it gives me an opportunity maybe to be successful where I couldn't be successful in the shorter distances. Like I, that's why I did the steeplechase in college <laughs> with a 1507 5k PR, you're not going to the NCAA championship. Uh, but in the steeplechase, if I can run a solid time, maybe I could. And it's kind of like the steeplechase is almost like the, the hundred mile of, ultra running running you know it's kind of like you get this misfit group of people that are out there doing it but sometimes the 50k gets more attractiveness you know or more well i guess that's not really true because 100 mile is just like kind of the iconic thing but there's there's an an analogy somewhere in there where like the steeplechase is sort of like you know the the stepchild and you know you can squeak your way into this um and it's more, more than just having a big <laughs> VO2 max. You've got to get totally. some other stuff right too. Yeah. 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 So it's, you, you, you level out maybe some of those genetic uh, lotteries that you missed out on. Um, and, uh, and so I do enjoy the long stuff. Um, and, and I'm drawn to something like States and States is now my new obsession. Um, you know, after my first attempt where <clears throat> honestly, like I'm more interested in States than I am at UTMB. And I think maybe some of that is that I know I can be successful at UTMB and the, curiosity and that lust has has waned a bit um and i feel like i haven't felt that same thing at a course like state so it's i'm fixated on it i want to get that puzzle right um but uh i guess a long way of answering your question of my favorite distance is 50k i love the 50k it just feels like a marathon that you can Actually, more like a cross-country race that that doesn't stop. Like you can just hammer, and it matters like to race people. And there's it's there's something something like the adrenaline and sort of the, just that like foot on the on, on the pedal, like full throttle that you'll I've never experienced in a hundred mile race that I'm attracted to about the fifty k. Um, so I, I I love that distance. And you've had a lot of success, a lot of wins, national championships, things like that. So uh, I'm sure that that feeds into it as well. Which you know, part of what I suppose I was trying to get at in that question is, do you think that what you enjoy the most is going to determine where you're going to have the most success too? Yeah, I, I think I, without a doubt, and and that would go for any distance. Like if you don't enjoy the the process of getting into the event, 
then it's going to feel empty if you have success. And it's probably going to lead to a lot of failure and early burnout because with any endurance sport, it just, it's a grind, as you know, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot of thankless and un, unseen work that goes into it for maybe, you know, a couple hour or, you know, a 20 hour effort, a 30 hour effort, if you're trying to beat the golden hour, you know, it's it, just majority 99% of it is going to be alone um, by yourself. So it is cliche as it is like, you need to find a way to embrace that journey and, and find something that sustains you because that's what bulk of it is. You know, we hope for those dream days, but in reality, we're only going to have a handful in our lives. So if that's what you're only chasing, I've chased that a lot. And it's, it's been a dragon that has, has bitten me, you know, where it's trying to get the external accolades or applause or recognition is a fruitless, unsustainable path that I and I'm, I'm not above saying that I'm not still on that, but it's something I'm trying to detach from and, and learn to, to really embrace that, that process more and have a growth mindset and, and realize that I'm enough without the, the accomplishments. Yeah. All, all excellent stuff there. And, and again, I 100% agree. So we, we talked a bit about Western States a second ago. Let, let's get into that now. So um, this is a slightly different type of race. So UTMB is over 30,000 feet of climbing. It's in the mountains, just up big climbs and descents all day long. Western States is a net downhill. There's only 18,000 feet of climbing, which is still a lot, but it's a lot more runnable. But the big challenge there is heat, extreme heat. Uh, And this year was your first year there. um, And it was an above average hot year, which tends to cause a bit more chaos. Uh, It means more people make mistakes. It means people can blow up a bit more. So how did you um, change your training from, say, UTMB to Western States build up? And then we'll we'll talk about all the other aspects of of Western States as well. The the biggest thing that I did differently was I tried to get away from um, as much climbing in the, as I had for some of those mountain races, which in hindsight, I think maybe wasn't the right move because I realized how strength-based Western States is. You need to be a strong runner and handle hills, even if it's, quote, only 18,000 feet. Um, and But uh, so I, I did more runnable terrain pretty much I didn't hike at all in any of my training in the buildup where I normally do a lot of hiking, um, in preparation for mountain races. Um, and then tried to mimic more of the, you know, demands of heat adaptation. Um, I worked with, uh, um, Roxy over at goo energy labs to devise kind of a, um, heat protocol and I didn't have access to a sauna or anything. So we did sort of the poor man's version of, um, hot bath soaks, which you can, you know, draw a bath and, and soak in it after um, key workouts. And so I kind of did that in a mix of actually even like sitting in my hot car, um, trying to create my own poor man sauna. Um, but uh, it was really just kind of dial in, be ready for the heat and, um, and try and work on cooling strategies. So that was a new new challenge for me. And so what was the kind of mileage and vert you were doing there uh, compared to UTMB? Because it's, as you said, it wasn't as focused on the vert this time. So my mileage, I think I, I bumped up on mileage a bit thinking that, um, you know, much more of a rival race. So I, I got up into probably my peak weeks were between 107 and 120 miles per week or so. And probably sprinkled in 16 to 19,000 feet of vert. So, I mean, substantial. It was good. Um, but, Definitely, yeah. Um, and honestly, I, I think I, I went in actually very physically prepared um, for this year's event. 
Um, I just ultimately lost it mentally, <laughs> but um, yeah, we could talk about that later. But uh, yeah, so I was kind of in that like, you know, 110-ish range to 115 miles, probably on average for my peak weeks. Yeah. So yeah, obviously you were training for specifics of the race yeah. in each of these things we've discussed here. And then um, you turned up super fit. Um, really to all of these events, you turn up very fit. I think it, you, you do a very good preparation, but then you see the contrast in the good day and the bad day isn't just how fit you are, of course. So how did the race go for you? I know you were amongst the leaders and you know, I, I saw you through a few of the aid stations in the first half and you were around, what, about third, I think, for, for a chunk of time. So there's Hayden Hawks in second, Jim Wormsley in first. And I think you were you kind of right, right behind them. You're very, very close for a long time. So yeah, talk me through how your race went. Started out kind of exactly how I had dreamt of it. You know, it was, uh, I enjoyed the high country, hiked up the escarpment. At that point, I was behind the leader, the, the female leaders, um, which I'm not unaccustomed to it, even at UTMB. I, I start out conservative. Um, but uh, yeah, enjoyed the high country. It was beautiful. A nice crisp morning. There was no snow. It was fast. <clears throat> I And I still believe this, but at the moment, I almost felt like I couldn't have gone slower. So I really felt I was within myself and, and I was low heart rate based on just my own perceived effort. Um, and I, I felt like I was in a very good position to conserve critical energy stores, um, not get above my threshold, um, just kind of took care of the, the, the things I needed to early in a race. Um, yeah, and I found myself pretty quickly towards the front. Um, I think it was around maybe... 20 miles or 25 miles, I end up in third place. And then um, things still were going pretty well through Robinson Flat. Um, but I guess uh, that's mile 30. Yeah, mile 30. Yeah. Um, and, and then actually, I, I sort of had this, um, it, I guess, I, I had a, a big swing of emotions and, and experiences between, um, I'd say between Robinson and uh, Cal one and Cal two, basically. So what would that be like? 30 to so that's like around 70. 70 yeah. yeah. So like the next okay. 40 miles, the, the middle of the yeah, race, yeah. those 40 miles, I, I went from, you know, feeling amazing and like I was going to win to, you know, nearly dropping out. And, um, and I, I guess I <clears throat> like continue with some of the, the things that I felt went well. I, um, got down into, um, across swinging bridge, um, before the climb up to devil's thumb, and I was running with Jared Hazen and on the climb, it, that's where for us, probably everyone, it starts getting hot and it, it was getting warm in that canyon. Um, and, and that's about halfway through the race, roughly yeah, going up to Devil's Thumb, Thumb, just for halfway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the hardest climb of the day as well yeah. for people. So yeah, this is super hot and it's the steepest climb yeah. just before the middle. So your legs are already fairly tired, but it is definitely ratcheting up the heat at that point. Yeah. And, and I... I found that on that climb, Jared was running the entire thing and I chose not to, I chose to hike. Um, I got to the top and at that point I'd kind of checked my ego and I realized, Hey, I'm going to run my race. It's not even halfway. I'm in a good position. Got to the top and he was about five minutes ahead of me. I was like, that's fine. You know, whatever. Um, and then by the descent, as we entered, I think El Dorado Creek is the next one. Um, after you come off <clears throat> before you climb up to Michigan bluff, I, I had caught him at El Dorado Creek, feeling like I was still just running within myself. So, so I thought, hey, this is perfect. You know, I'm I'm going conservative on the uphills, running the downhills. I'm staying with the people that I think I should. Um, and so I was in a really good headspace. <clears throat> but then 
as we climbed up to Michigan Bluff, so 55 miles, it got really warm at that point, you know, that, that next climb. Um, and, and at that point, um, Jared had dropped off a bit. And, and then at, at the very top, Alex Nichols, one of my friends um, who had finished second uh, back in 2017, um, that I had the privilege of pacing him for that race. He caught up to me. And, and I think that was the first sort of seed of mental doubt that I had. And not that I didn't think he should run with me because he's an amazing runner, but he looked so effortless and he was running the climb while I was hiking. And I think that was the first kind of like mental guard that I let down. And I, I, I fixated on why is he looking so good and I'm hiking, even though that was my strategy, I just, I, I started losing my, my mental game. And, and that kind of thought virus crept into my head of he's looking fantastic. You're not looking as good. And over the next 20 miles or so that virus thought virus grew into just this deafening, just scream in my head that like I was losing things and kind of catastrophizing uh, my race. And did, did you have more people pass you during that period to, to add to that? So the, the next section, no one passed me from Michigan bluff to forest Hill. However, that volcano Canyon for me was really, really hot and really hard. And I think mentally I started to really lose it where Alex continued to run and I continued to kind of feel like I had to walk, um, which in hindsight, when I deconstruct it in that 40 or 55 to let's say 70 mile in a race, um, I've had a lot of low points, but it's, it's kind of normal for me to get through that and then come out the other side. But I got so fixated on the low point that I forgot that I should look beyond and just give myself a chance that I think I started getting stuck in my own, like, like wallows. Like, yeah, I was just kind of like starting to, to kind of, uh, spiral a bit, but, and, and at the same time, it's hot. It is very hot and it is, it's hard. So, I mean, I'm, I can't get away from there were those variables, but, uh, you know, so it was probably a multitude of things, but I, I started to really lose my mental edge. Um, and no one passed me, but the effort felt exceptionally high. And w- one thing we know is when your perceived effort is high, it's going to change sort of your ability to, to, to see success in the future. Uh, things start to unravel quicker. Um, your optimism is going to be shot and you could actually, you know, start to burn different uh, fuel stores, you know, as you start to shift your effort um, into different um, sort of thresholds. Um, but it wasn't until after Forest Hill that people started to pass me along after Cal 1. And that's where things really unraveled. And, and that's where I think I, I kind of almost put the nail in my own mental coffin. Of Instead of running my own race, I started fixating so much on other people. And like I mentioned, a uh, friend Drew, he passed, he was having an incredible day. And in my mind, that was sort of that zero sum mentality of meaning, oh, he's having this day, that means I'm having a bad day where that's not the case, but I just happened to fall into that. And I couldn't shake that idea. And it started to spiral. Um, And then physically, I had lost um, sort of the wherewithal to take care of my nutritional needs. And so like, you know, things start to snowball. And it it basically, I just stopped taking care of myself mentally and physically. Um, And and that led to basically a major bonk at Cal 2. I sat in the aid station for almost 40 minutes something I've never done. And I mean, in comparison, this is kind of a fun stat. At UTMB in 2017, I stopped at aid stations over that 19 hour and 53 race for a total of 12 minutes in aid stations. Wow. And I spent 
36 or 38 minutes at Cal 2. <laughs> and and <laughs> again, this was my, um, I would say my inexperience, even though I have some experience, is fixating on that meant it was over, where it's far from over. Um, but in the moment, I catastrophized it in thinking, why am I still going if I'm sitting here for this long? Like, my goals are gone, where instead of fixing, like, I was fixated on a goal versus D, E, F, or even X goal, where, you know, and it's something that it, it just kind of highlighted my vulnerability mentally and things that I want to continue to refine and work on. Um, but it uh, just kind of reminded me that, hey, you might think you have things figured out, but we're all learning. You know, it's a, it was a nice uh, kind of humble reminder that, um, yeah, I, like you said, I could have come in as fit as maybe anyone outside of gym, but I wasn't ready to play with, with everybody. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear just how it unraveled for you there in those seconds. So just for context for people, uh, Forest Hills at mile 62. And then after that, you've done all the big canyons and it's much more runnable going down to the river. There's mile 78. So Cal 1, Cal 2, Cal 3, uh, aid stations uh, along that section. They're not the best places to sit. I, I can't imagine it was nice being there because it would be pretty hot, yeah. um, probably fairly exposed. Um, and also, it's a narrow single track. So anyone who's passing you, you're seeing them right up close rather than some big aid station where you could be out the way or anything like that. Yeah. So when you were sat there, what got you going again? So, I mean, to be honest, I had basically given up and I, I wanted the aid station, the medical team to cut my band and tell me that they would give me a ride to my crew. Um, thankfully, they were not going to do that. Um, and and I, they're, they're the, um, the medical, uh, I guess, uh, the, the doctor at that aid station, Joanne, she sat with me for a while and we chatted and she helped basically nurse me back into a better mindset and then basically kicked me out the door and you know because there was no reason for me to it's stop. That tough love it's what they're there yep. for. yeah and i think for me and this may be true for some people that have had success if you haven't gone through those real low points you kind of forget that that is the reality of our sport you know i i've troubleshot things much better than i did on that day and i, I i'm regretful of my inability to do that however it kind of highlighted that hey you know when things really do go south if barring injury or the impact negatively on maybe fam, family or friends, if there's no good reason to drop out, I really should not be entertaining that idea. But I had committed to that mindset of I'm done, like, you know, my race is over. But ultimately, it was like an opportunity to kind of fully reset. Um, she kicked me out eventually. I walked down towards Cal 2 or Cal 3 for a while before I started running. And, and it just allowed me to reset mentally and physically. And, and I think at that point, I did refocus my my goals on I'm finishing this no matter what. And I was okay with who, however many people passed me. Um, and ultimately, I, I guess it, it allowed me to strip myself of those, those limitations I had had of thinking it's all or nothing, black and white, where, okay, your dream race is done. So why continue? And, and I, I started forging ahead. And, and through that time, something I should mention is I really was able to replenish where in the, the low moments early on in the race, I just wasn't consuming enough. And so there was a physical aspect of all of this. Um, so consuming more calories definitely helped me, I think, start to make better decisions mentally and physically start to rebound a bit. Um, and ultimately was able to 
to basically kind of, I, I, there's that same like puke and rally. Um, mine was almost bonk and rally. Like I, I would suddenly start to feel good. So I'd run and then I'd realize, Oh no, my legs are kind of feeling it. And, and after you've sat for that long, it's, it's not ideal. You know, you sit for a long period. Of time, up a lot. Up a lot. Yeah. So it was kind of like I'd run and then suddenly my body would kind of like give me the middle finger and I'd start walking again. Um, but I kind of yo-yoed my way to the finish. Um, and it, uh, it went from, I was definitely dropping out at Cal two to, okay, I'm going to finish no matter what. And then I had no real expectations of being competitive, but then it, and I actually got, I think I dropped as low as ninth place. Um, and Beth Pascal passed me, um, at 80, before 85 miles, I was laying in a, in a puddle basically. And she, she ran by me with her pacer and which was inspiring because she just absolutely crushed it on that day. Um, and I was actually just thinking, okay, let's just hang on to Beth. Like, let's like follow this train to the finish. And then I realized that it was getting dark and I did not have a headlamp because I had not planned on being out there that long. And so I did the math in my head and I realized, okay, I'm at alt, which is 85 miles in. And I don't see my, a my crew until pointed rocks, which was 94 and, you know, nine ish, 10 miles that could take me two hours and sun is setting. So I started really started cranking it and had to kind of hightail those, those next 10 miles to try and get to my crew to get a headlamp. And the last maybe mile, 10, 15 minutes, I, I was basically running in the dark without a headlamp. Thankfully, I know those trails really well, but it uh, it was it was a bit precarious. Well, it shows how the goal setting and the motivation was the biggest factor there. I mean, you had huge amounts of fitness that that was taken for granted. You know that you'd be able to have a high end, but you've got to have the mind willing to push you at that point. If if you have an A goal and then that seems to drop off, um, it can seem very difficult to pick another goal unless you genuinely had B, C, D, E goals. And in the marathon, you don't have half an hour to sit down and go, okay, well, I was going to run 218. Now I'm going to run three hours. That's probably going to end in a DNF there. But at least in this type of race, there's a lot more time to bring it round. But uh, to be able to, to drop back and then still finish in fifth place and have that strong finish, I'm sure passing people must have been a big part of, of the uh, energy you got near the end. So did that really kind of pep you up and give you a, an additional purpose at that point? You know, I, I would say it was, it wasn't so much as passing people. And, and part of this might be that I don't have the killer mindset. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I do, I do get competitive, but I'm not competitive at all or against all odds. Um, I, I do fall into more of that kind of like, I, I'll settle for this. You know, I'm not always the Zach Miller where I'm going to gut myself, but you know, so I didn't necessarily feel like I wanted to beat the guys in front of me anymore, but I realized in that moment that, Hey, my A, B, C, and D goals may be gone, but I can still finish strong for myself. And so I wanted to do that. And, and a lot of it did come down to Lindsay and my family. So many people invested into this effort and it's not fair to anyone, myself included to just throw it away. And being at Western States is such a privilege. I can't throw that away. But in the thick of it, when you're really at a low, you can obviously not think about those things. And so I think I needed to kind of get that perspective of realizing, hey, no one actually really cares if I won this race, you know, but I, I need to 
finish on a strong note. And so it became more almost, I'm going to see what I can do over the last 15 miles. Um, well, really, yeah, basically, you know, just because the race deserves this. I deserve it. My family deserves it. And, and I think it took me, unfortunately, several hours to find that where in hindsight, had I come to that realization along Cal 1 or Cal 2, it could have been a different outcome. But again, that kind of is like what we were talking about earlier. It's like, well, if that is all that I care about, that means that I am driven by just the outcome. And, you know, obviously I would do want to be more successful in the future, but I, I'd like to walk away knowing that I did enough for myself and that I gave it my all. And I, I, I feel like ultimately I ended on a strong note, but I know I didn't give it my all on that day. And that's where I feel disappointed, um, if that makes sense. It, it completely does, yeah. And and the motivators you're talking about there, just having something more than just ego, like your position is very much ego based. But having um, all the people out there helping you and wanting to you know make it valuable and worthwhile of their time, um, just respect for the race. And the other thing you said that I think was really important there is just wanting to do your best effort to be able to hold your head up high. And I think that's one of the the biggest motivators, especially returning to races, whether it's UTMB, Western States, or whatever someone listening's uh, main goal races, just that ability to say, no, I, I improved a little bit. And even if you get older and you get slower, you can still improve. You might have a slower time, but you can still do it better. And that is an incredibly big motivation. So um, no, thank you for sharing all of that. I, I, it's getting uh, very dark at your end there, <laughs> and I, I want to be mindful of your time. I said it for but, not um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. I, I can see and hear you fine. So um, very good luck at uh, UTMB. When uh, when people listen to this, it'll be getting pretty close to that race. And um, yeah, thank you for all the, the really good, wise and, and uh, helpful things you've said there that I think are uh, learnings that you get to from years of experience and uh, things that you can learn through a lot of trial and error. But uh, even still, you know, it can show that the Western States doesn't go perfectly, but that's why you want to go back and do what you feel is a a well-executed race. Um, I, I can 100% appreciate that, and I hope everyone else who listens can as well. So congrats still on fifth place. It gets you back in next year, and good luck for an amazing UTMB this year. Thank you so much. It's been been an honor to be uh, chatting with you. Cheers, Tim. Speak to you later. Cool. Bye. Bye. You can follow Tim Tollefson on Instagram and Twitter at, at Tim Tollefson. And you can hire him as a PT at Mammoth Performance Lab in California. Contact me, Ian Sharman, at sharmanultra.com. And also let me know if there are any particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. And finally, it really helps the podcast to reach more people if you rate or subscribe on whatever channel you get your shows from. So we really appreciate that too. And check out podiumrun.com for articles for runners of all levels. Thanks, and see you next month.